0: You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee The Historic Church of Robert Murray McShane For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk Some of the elders noticed that David didn't seem to have any interest in the books that were given to him this morning They're still lying behind there And uh, I said to Hugh, let's steal them and then he would have volumes two to five of uh, John Knox and two to seven of John Calvin and two to four of John Newton, and he'd be going round. <laughs> you know, there's just something very unsatisfactory about not having volume one. Well, we're reading volume one of the two volumes of Peter's letters in the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter One, um, there's a certain kind of old age envy creeps in when you hear people like Sam going to begin their their new life. We should have a deal with our Irish students that they're not allowed to go home unless they guarantee to plant another tree in St. Peter's um, because it is such a blessing not only to be um, multi-age but multi-ethnic. Although, as you know, the Scots are actually Irish, so unless you're a picked, you're actually Irish, I guess, is uh, what I'm saying. Although it does produce new hymns, like the 19th century hymn we sang earlier in the service. Uh, it tells you something about um, divisions of age. That's a hymn, I think, by uh, James Montgomery written in the nineteenth century. And I did notice this morning uh, while I'm on a roll that uh, when David used a phrase in the sermon, tunnel of love, there was a certain age group in the congregation, gave little giggles, and the rest of you had no idea whatsoever what he was talking to. That was a pop song of I don't even know if it was his youth, but it was certainly of my youth. But to our business uh, this evening, First Peter chapter 1, and if you're using the church Bible, it's still on page 1,217, and so we've been on that page for a good number of weeks and therefore going through First Peter relatively slowly. I think it's helpful for us not to lose the forest by looking at the trees. So, let me remind you of what we noted last week for the first time, which is that First Peter, the message of First Peter can be grasped quite simply in outline. It begins with a greeting and then a doxology filled with praise to God. It ends with more greetings and then a benediction, God's blessing on the people who are reading and hearing this letter for the first time. And in the middle, it divides into three sections. The the first of these three sections, the major section that goes from chapter 1 verse 13 to chapter 3 verse 7, emphasizes our calling to be holy. And Peter takes us through a series of concentric circles in which the holiness to which we are called works out. Then secondly, because he is speaking to a pre-Christian world where suffering is about to engulf the Roman Empire, he urges these Christians to experience suffering in a way that is godly. There are different ways in which we can respond to suffering. So, he's calling us to be holy, he's encouraging us to suffer in the distinctive way that godly people do, and then towards the end of the letter, he is exhorting us to live together in humility. So a calling to be holy, willingness to experience suffering in a way that is godly, and developing a lifestyle uh, individually and together that's marked by humility. And we're just at the beginning of the first of these major sections. So, let me read this evening from uh, verse 17 through to verse 21. He is exhorting us, verse 15, God has called you, He is holy, you are to be holy in all your conduct, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who, through Him, are believers in God who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God." It is actually now about fifty years ago that I first read the memoirs of Robert Murray McChain. I was a teenager. I felt I was called to the gospel ministry, and I read the memoirs of the young Robert Murray McChain. Uh, a minister of the gospel here in this church in Dundee. And I guess like many young men beside me, before me, after me, were certain things that McChain said or wrote that made an indelible impression on me. And one that made a special impression on me was this comment. He said, speaking about his congregation, My people's greatest need is, if I had taught practical theology, I would make that an exam question. Conclude this sentence and explain your answer. What is a congregation's greatest need in their minister? Many of you know uh, the way in which McChain finished the sentence. My people's greatest need is my personal holiness. And of course, if you're a teenager going into the ministry, that resounds with you in a very special way. But what Peter is saying here at this point in the letter is, let's not restrict that to ministers. Let's all create the sentence, my families, my neighbors, my colleagues, my employers, my employees, my patients, my students, greatest need is my personal holiness. And the ground for saying that is quite simply, that's what Scripture teaches us. That's what Scripture taught the people of God. Under the Old Covenant, and Peter is simply quoting from the book of Leviticus, you are called to be holy, I am holy, says the Lord, therefore you will be holy. It is a marvelous combination of an exhortation and a prophecy. You are called to be holy, and I will make you holy, you will be holy just as I am holy. We might put it this way, that one of the the sentences in which we can summarize God's purpose for our lives is this, God is in deadly earnest about your holiness, and He will not rest satisfied if you rest satisfied in anything less than seeking that personal holiness or to put that negatively, not to aspire to this holiness, which Scripture teaches us, without which none of us will see the Lord, not to aspire to that in our own lives, is not to aspire to what God aspires to in our lives. It is to be diverted from His purpose. And as long as we are diverted from His purpose, we can never be happy as Christians we're always going to be niggling and fighting and uncomfortable and complaining until we yield to His plan for our lives. And so, this long section, this major section in First Peter is about this summons to be holy. And Peter works it out. He applies it in a whole series of different spheres, first of all in our individual lives, and then in our church life, in our relationship with one another, and then he applies it in the way in which we live in society, and then he applies it to the way in which we live in our domestic life or home life. He covers covers everything. And the way he does it is a great illustration of how the gospel works. We don't live out the gospel in a piecemeal fashion, being one thing in one context, another thing in another context but we are the same thing in a variety of contexts. And none of us lives in only one context. We do live as individuals, but we live as individuals in the community of the church, and we live in that community as those who live in the world, and we live in that community as those also who who live in families together. And so, in every area of my life, what, what is my, my big need as an individual? It's holiness. What is my big need as I seek to live in the church? It's, it's holiness. That's what the person standing next to me in church when I sing needs most of all from me. He or she needs that far more than they need the particular gift that I may think I've got to contribute to the church. Gift is a small thing by comparison with the big thing, and the big thing is holiness. And the central thing in holiness, as I think we mentioned last week, was that in the New Testament, I am holy, you will be holy, can be translated into this, the Lord Jesus saying to us, I am holy and I want to make you more like me. And it's in that context you'll notice in, in this little section that Peter gives us a single exhortation. What is, what is essential to growth and holiness? Well, his answer may be, may be surprising, but you'll notice what it is. He says it very, very clearly here. He says, if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, and then here is the only exhortation in this section, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Characteristic of holiness in the gospel is gospel fear. And it's interesting, you'll notice, and I think he does this deliberately, Peter echoes in that statement the statement that he had just made. He said in verse 15, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Now, just hold on to that word conduct, because you'll notice he repeats it again. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile." So it's as though he's he's opening up the box of holiness and he's saying, "One one of the things that characterizes your growth in holiness is that all those who call on God as their Father will live their lives in this world during this exile with a spirit of fear. And they will do so, he goes on to explain, verse 18, knowing this, knowing this, that you were ransomed from your futile ways. So here is an exhortation that is bound by two principles of its empowerment. We live our lives in fear, on the one hand, because we are those who call on God as our Heavenly Father during our exile, and on the other hand, because we know that we were ransomed not with silver and gold, but with the precious lifeblood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And remember the driving principle here. It is that we need to understand what the gospel teaches us about what it means to be a Christian if we're going to live as a Christian. And the problem just at that point is usually this, that we forget who we are or we suffer from identity theft. We suffer from identity theft. And here Peter is saying to us, Christians live their lives here with a fear in their hearts, on the one hand, because they know they are the children of God, and on the other hand, because they know that they have been redeemed with the precious lifeblood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's uh, that's not how we characteristic we think, is it? I mean, I wouldn't be surprised in a a congregation like this, maybe 25% of us have already popping into our minds, but the Apostle John says, perfect love casts out fear. Well, you have two choices, haven't you? Choice number one is to say, I need to understand this text properly. Choice number two is, let's see a fist fight between the Apostle Peter and the Apostle John. And most of us want to plump for the first, don't we, much as you might like a little fist fight between the apostle Peter and the apostle John. You don't assume that they were contradicting each other, not these two apostles who were uh, of the apostles probably closest to the Lord Jesus. So what is Peter saying to us here? And notice to this extent. I wonder if you would agree with me when I say I think one of the things most feared by many evangelical Christians is the fear of God. Many evangelical Christians have more fear of the fear of God than they seem to have, the fear of God. And we don't like to speak that way. We we believe the gospel. That's Old Testament stuff. Not of your apostle Peter, it's not Old Testament stuff. So, what is he saying here? In ye ancient days, in Murray McChain's time, it was the highest compliment to pay to a Christian in Scotland, the fear of God is on his soul. I don't think that would be true among evangelical Christians in Scotland today. I think that would paint all kinds of pictures of a distorted individual, a metallic individual, a kind of vinegary individual you wouldn't want to go near. But this is Peter. My friends, this is the Peter who failed so disastrously, who's able to write this only because he was restored by God's grace and knows he's going to be heard only because these people must know something about the grace of God working in his life. And so, we may assume they want to listen to what he used to say and to develop this fear of God in their lives and to see how the fear of God fits in on the one hand to knowing that you are a child of God, and on the other hand, to knowing that you have been ransomed and redeemed by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And actually, it wouldn't surprise me if there is a real connection between the loss of a sense of being a child of the Heavenly Father and a loss of the sense of fear I find in, I've found most of my Christian life and Christian ministry, so many Christian believers who have so little sense of what it means to be a child of God, and correspondingly, so little sense of fear of God. That's an, an alien concept, difficult concept, something I don't want to do anything to do with. And yet, Peter is essentially saying, you will never know what it is to enjoy being a child of God unless simultaneously you experience what it means to taste the fear of God. So, let's try and explore these things together. He's exhorting us to conduct ourselves with fear throughout the time of our exile, first of all, because we are those who call on God as the Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Many of you have read Jim Packer's book, Knowing God, I'm sure. And remember how he begins the chapter on sons of God? If you want to know how much somebody understands what it means to be a Christian you ask them this question. That's another question, isn't it? What question do you ask them? You ask, how much do they make of knowing God as their heavenly Father? He says that's the litmus test. That's when you step back of it and read through the Gospels. It's obviously the litmus test. That's the big thing in the Gospels, isn't it? Nobody in the Old Testament Scriptures comes to God and says, Abba, Father. But through Christ and this explosion of the revelation of the heart and purposes of God and the work of Jesus Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit, this is at the epicenter of what it means to be a Christian. And Peter is saying, but do you notice what happens when you you're brought into that sense that God is your heavenly Father. He uses, remember, in this chapter the language of regeneration, you have been born again into this new family. You're filled with a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You're not only, as Paul would say, adopted into the family of God, but you're you're given this new disposition of being a child of God and you cry, Abba, Father. And so, should it surprise us that part of the atmosphere of this new relationship, part of the experience of this new relationship, is that there should be introduced into our lives what Peter here calls fear. So, how can you reconcile what Peter is saying with what John is saying. Well, clearly what John is saying is this, the love of God in our lives expels from our hearts the terror of God that we used to know before we were Christians that made us run from Him. And Peter is saying, yes, but uh, the love of God is not the antithesis of the fear of God. It may be the antithesis of the terror of God, but it's not the antithesis of that fear of God that Scripture speaks about from beginning to end, that sense of His greatness. And not only so, that sense of the greatness of His love It's interesting, actually, that this quotation that Peter uses from Leviticus chapter 19 is is set in a fascinating context. We are to be holy as He is holy, and then that's set in the context of fearing or reverently loving your mother and your father. Isn't that interesting? It's almost as though he's saying, in the context of a a godly home, a young Christian will grasp instinctively what this fear of God is that uh, the Bible speaks about. Isn't it a craven terror of God? If you had the best father in the world, and we can't all have had the best father in the world, but if you had the best father in the world as a child for all the love that you might feel for them, I guarantee there would still be a fear. But of what would there be a fear? The fear would not be the terror that this ghastly Victorian father was going to take me into the back room and beat me up. The fear would be that I would do anything that would hurt or shame or offend or cause him pain. And you see, that's a fear that is produced by love. The reason a Christian knows little of the fear of God is because, listen to me very carefully, that Christian knows little of the love of God. That Christian is still at a level of thinking the fear of God is produced by the condemnation of God's law. And that's a person who has never tasted enough love from another person to fear, to fear to offend them, to fear to grieve them. The problem with our lack of fear of God is we know so little of the love of God. So, we mustn't be taken in by the people who say, well, John says perfect love casts out fear. We must listen to what the Scriptures are saying. We must listen to each text of Scripture. And don't imagine because the, the same words appear that the writers mean exactly the same thing. There is a fear born in the heart of the believer by the sheer intensity of the love of God. And I hope it is not overly hurtful to you to say, if you have not tasted that, your problem is that you know far too little of His love. You know so little of His love that has never caused you to tremble, tremble, tremble. Were you never there when they crucified my Lord? Sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble, tremble. Why? Because I've never known someone who loved me this much. I've never known somebody who loved me more than he seemed to love himself. I've never known someone who was prepared to die in shame for my sin. I've never known someone who is willing to say in in the ineffable eternal glory, I will go into all the shame and all the exposure I will let them strip me bare, which almost certainly they did to the Lord Jesus for her sake." That creates sinners. This is is not a terror of Jesus. This this is a love that causes us to to tremble and to, to fear lest we do anything that would grieve the Savior who has so marvelously loved us. Perhaps the best way I think it's ever been put, with apologies to those of you who are Irish, although this man may have been a Scot, John Brown, he puts it like this, the essence of the fear of God is that we so desire to live with His smile upon us that we tremble to do anything that would offend Him. And so, he puts it like this. The result is, it matters little to us if the world frowns on us, if He smiles. And it matters little to us that this world smiles on us, if He frowns. You you got that? The test of your experience of the love of God lies in your fear of God. The test of your experience of the love of God is measured in this way, that it doesn't matter to me what man or woman may say or do to me as long as I have His approval, all is well. and. And this, for some of us, may be the deeper challenge. What people think of us and their approval of us is utterly insignificant to us. It may be very nice, but it has no impact on us whatsoever if in receiving it we know we are living in a way that will offend our beloved Heavenly Father. And that gives us great strength, doesn't it? Here you are, and you're an individual, and the world doesn't think very well of you, and it it hurts. Ah, but it hurts less when you know that He smiles upon you. And here you are in a situation where there is a door open for you. If you If you will simply duck a little, if you will simply duck a little from the high calling of Jesus Christ, the favor of the world will be poured out upon you. but you fear Him." Remember the Hebrew midwives in in Exodus? Isn't this a great illustration of this? What gave the Hebrew midwives the strength to stand up to Pharaoh? Well of course, the Hebrew women give birth very quickly, and they couldn't get there in time. I don't know if that was a little porky or not, you know, I mean, maybe it's true. But it's not the ultimate explanation in the text, is it? It is that the Hebrew midwives feared the Lord. And when you fear the Lord, you can stand up to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh can tear his hair out on the throne, but he can never destroy you. Or as our minister's beloved John Flavel puts it, carnal persons fear man not God. Strong Christians fear God, not man. Weak Christians fear God too little, and therefore man too much. There is a delight in fearing God, and that delight comes from the knowledge that He is our Father, and He's the Father who judges all of our works, just as fathers do this nonsense we've got in the world, don't judge. Think of the wreckage of children's lives because their fathers did not assess their lifestyle. Of course He does, because He's our Father. And so, this is a great motivation to pursue this holiness in the fear of the Lord, without which none of us will ever have the privilege of seeing Him. We know we are a child of the Heavenly Father, and we need to dwell on that. This fear of God, this is, this is so quintessential in the Christian life. You don't develop this fear of God by looking at your own heart and saying, I need to get more fear in there. That would just be to fear fear. No, you only This only is developed in your life by looking full into His face. And the more you know who He is and the more you grasp how much He has loved you, the more this is produced. This isn't something that we work up. This is something that comes down because of the nature of who He is and how much He loves us and what He has done for us and who He is to us. He's our Father, But then there is this other motive. On the one hand, he says, we live out our lives in holiness in this reverent fear of the Lord because He's our Heavenly Father. But then secondly, because we are now slaves set free at the redemptive price of His Son. You see, these two things go together, don't they? That we know He's our Heavenly Father. But how do we know how much He loves us? How do you know how much God loves you? You, you, you can't measure it by anything that's happening in your life, can you? If you were to measure how much God loved you by what is happening in your life, some of us would conclude that His stock is going up and others of us would conclude that His stock is going down. Some of us would be, we'd be sitting like a distraught, broken-hearted, unrequited lover sitting in the field, He loves me, He loves me not, He loves me, He loves me not. How do we know He loves us? Well, here is the explanation. This is the consistent explanation of the New Testament it's because of what he did to redeem us and of course this must have been very there would be people listening in the house church where first peter was first read out or the many house churches in pontus galatia cappadocia asia and bithynia where this letter was first read out and they understood this language about redemption perfectly it touched them in a way it never touches us because they were slaves remember 1 Peter chapter 3, 18, he begins speaking. Now, those of you who are slaves, I mean, fancy it. Maybe there was a really mega church in Cappadocia, the size of St. Peter's. And here the reader is is reading it out, and and some of them are glancing at each other. Maybe some of them are glancing at each other in different ways because there may be slave masters in the congregation as well as slaves. It it was… It was was like employers and employees in the modern world. It It was how the Roman Empire operated. And perhaps there were some sitting there who had once been slaves but had been redeemed. The redemption price had been paid for them. And I think Peter has this at the back of his mind. I think Peter is thinking, now you know exactly what I'm speaking about here. It was a very interesting way of being redeemed in the Roman Empire. It wasn't, it wasn't a straightforward business. What you did as the slave was to buy yourself back from your slavery. But you didn't just go direct to your master and say, you know, pull out your wallet and say, you know, I've been saving up and people have been sending me money. You know, will you take 30 pounds? what you did was you went to the temple. Because the only way in which you could be redeemed in the Roman world was if one of the gods redeemed you. And so, you went to the temple, and you took out your little wallet, and you said, how much? How much has been agreed? Well, it was 30 pounds. Well, here, 30 pounds. Take 30 pounds. And in the temple, they took the 30 pounds. you know what they did then? I don't need to tell you what they did then. So, the slave owner comes along, and in the temple they say, there's your 20 pounds, and there's our 10 pounds. So, the interesting features of being redeemed as a slave, manumission, as the technical language is, was, number one, you paid yourself. Number two, it cost the God who set you free absolutely nothing. Indeed, He made His little percentage out of it in the temple. And so, you see the wording that Peter uses. I mean, if you can think your way into sitting there as a slave who who perhaps for for ten years, because they didn't have the practice they had in the Old Testament, that if you became an indentured slave, in other words, if you were bankrupt and you sold yourself to somebody, when the year of Jubilee came, that was all finished. You, you were Scot-free or Jew-free or even Irish-free, but you were free. It was built into the society, but not in the Roman Empire. And here some of them have been thinking, they've been scraping together for years, perhaps even for decades. And here they're being taught about a God who so loves them that He pays the redemption price for them Himself. This God does redeem, and this God pays the redemption price Himself. And Peter's not Peter. You know, Peter wasn't like Paul, but at this point, he's very like Paul. You know, Paul says some things, and you want to say, "Just stop there a minute." You know, and he goes on to these spirals, and Peter does exactly the same thing here. You can tell that they must have met on more than one occasion, because look at what Peter says. He doesn't just say, as we sometimes say, "We were bought with a price." my friends, it's not enough to say we were bought with a price. The love of God for us is not measured just for the fact that we were bought with a price. The fear of God, the sheer ecstasy of trembling in His presence because of the majesty of His love is not produced just by saying we've been bought with a price. It's produced by saying what the price was and look at it. We have been redeemed by the the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish. Who was He? He begins in eternity. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Is God's love for me not only as deep as this, but as eternity long as this, before He made the world, before before He spanned the wonders of history, before my family name was even on the map of history, He had foreknown His Son in eternity to come to be my Savior and was made manifest in the last times for your sake. You see what he's saying? So, the only reason Jesus ever appeared on earth, the only reason the Son of God humbled himself, made himself of no reputation, died the cruel death of the cross, the only reason for doing that was for our sakes. Yes, for God's glory, but for God's glory by doing it for our sakes. And the result of that is this, that through Him you have become a believer in God who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory. So, He's he's back to eternity. He's saying we understand the measure of the motivation of the love of God for us, by the measure of what Jesus Christ has done for us, and by the sheer value of the redemption price. The measure of the love is seen in the superlative nature of the gift that He has given on the cross for our sakes. Not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, And this, he says, has redeemed us from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, the empty ways, language that that Paul uses, uses on more than one occasion. We were hearing about it this morning, the futility that our ignorance of God produces. It's what the book of Ecclesiastes is about. I can amass everything, but it's worth nothing at the end of the day. And, and here's a little indication, he's probably not writing to Jewish believers because what they inherited from their ancestors was the, the old covenant scriptures that pointed them towards Jesus Christ. He's, he's speaking about this terrible world in which the, the entire Roman world lived, in which, uh, and, you, and you read it in the literature this tremendous sense of futility, kind of thing that David was speaking about this morning. When you read the literature of really serious people in the modern world, you get this enormous sense of the absolute futility of it all, the compasslessness of it all. And that's what you've been redeemed from. And the measure of that redemption, he says, is found in the, the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that was the ransom price for our salvation. The Beatles got it right, didn't they? Money can't buy you this love. No, it can't. You've been redeemed from those futile ways. Remember how Paul puts it in Ephesians 2, we were following the course of this world. We were following the prince of the power of the air, and we were following the way of being dead and trespasses and sins. You know, as you, as you drive around Dundee, as you look at, um, as you look at people today, you can, you can see in even what they do to themselves and to their bodies that, that they're telling you who they are, but who they're telling you who they are is they've really no idea who they are, and they are kind have of lost souls, and there's this terrible futility. And you know, our governments know this. They wouldn't dare say it, but they know it, and they're, they're doing all kinds of things legally and sociologically and in different ways to try to do something about this. But they don't have the, res- the only resources that will transform this futility because they refuse the one reality that destroys the futility and gives real significance and meaning but the newest Christian is ransomed from all that. (laughs) I mean, it's always been true that people want to make statements about how different they are and don't realize that they're just being dedicated followers of fashion. You need to be a certain age to understand what that phrase means as well, don't you? (laughs) So happens that today, you think I'm not in touch with the modern world Today is Ray Davis's 71st birthday. How many of you knew that? The kinks. They seek him there, they seek him here. He's a dedicated follower of fashion. My dear friends, that's exactly where people are. Dedicated. Oh, I'm not dedicated. You're not only dedicated, you're enslaved, aren't you? Remember the picture with which the morning sermon began of the two screens and the gospel screen of freedom and love and joy, and this screen where people want to say they are different and they are free, and it's so obvious just to see them and listen to them, that they are dedicated followers of fashion. And that's what these people were until they heard about Jesus Christ and they were brought into the kingdom of God. No no wonder, I think, I, I doubt very much that any of their lower lips trembled when they heard this exhortation to fear God because they had this great sense of the power and majesty of the gospel sheer wonder of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who, who wouldn't be caused to tremble, tremble, tremble? It's a thrilling thing to tremble before the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter is saying, it's what brings us freedom and sets us free from bondage. We are an eclectic bunch here, aren't we? And some of you may well, some of you may be recovering Anglicans, but you don't want to recover too far and forget the second collect of morning prayer and those beautiful words, O oh God, you can tell I'm not an Anglican, I'm going to have to read them to you. O oh God, who art the author of peace and lover of concord in knowledge of whom standeth our eternal life, whose service is perfect freedom. I would almost turn you into a bishop. Did you have to say those words in a cathedral. Oh, that those words were said in cathedrals where people really believed the gospel. You go into far too many of them, and you would have to search high and low to find anything that would tell you the story of the gospel. But whose service is perfect freedom. And if it's true as we, I don't even know here if we do sometimes sing this or not, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust my sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, because God has raised him from the dead, given him glory, so that your faith and hope might be in God. And since tonight I'm covering the Irish, the Scots, the Episcopalians, I've referred to a Presbyterian and two pop stars. Let me finish with Frederick William Faber, Who began life as uh, an evangelical and ended life, I think, as a Roman Catholic, or certainly a high Anglican. But there were some things he understood, and here was one of them. They love thee little, if at all, who do not fear thee much. If love is thine attraction, Lord, fear is thy very touch. Don't you think that's why everybody who really gets a glimpse of Jesus in the New Testament, maybe that's a little exaggeration, everybody who grasps who he really is, what's their native instinct? Put their hands in their pockets and say, Great to see you, Jesus. No, it's to fall down before him, lost in wonder, love, and praise because love and fear become one in the one who knows he or she has become a child of the heavenly Father, and that this has been accomplished at the inexpressibly great price of the sacrifice of the great Son of the Eternal God. I mean, who, this is… Who would not not want to be a Christian? And yet, of course, by nature, none of us does. Uh, We would rather be prodigal sons messing around with the pigs, refusing to go home. But there is provision in the Father's house. Yes, even for you. And so come, or come for the 30th or 300th time. And rejoice in what it means to be able to say, how I fear the living God with deepest, tenderest fears. Yield your life to Him and say, make me as holy as it's possible for a saved sinner to be. And where I work and in the church, with my family, in the street, among my pupils, with my masters, with those I employ, with those for whom I am employed. Their greatest need is my personal holiness, because it means that there's a that I walk in the fear of the Lord, because I know how much He has done to save me. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the riches of your word and for what it means for us to be able to sit under the teaching that comes forth from it. It, is, it seems to us to be like a book full of light, and as long as it is opened and read and explained, it seems like the burning bush, that it gives us light and heat, but it's never consumed. We thank You that this is because it is Your Word, and we pray that in whatever ways Your Holy Spirit has applied and will apply the exposition of it to each of us and to all of us, that You will lead us all to, to lovingly fear You and to rejoice in the great price You have paid for our redemption. We bless You in Jesus' name. Amen.